So the clip that we just played was a clip from a series of message that I gave as we were preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, it was a message that was entitled, Our Great Oblatunity. Okay, oblatunity. Now, some of you know what that word means because you were here 16 years ago. Some of you have no idea what it means, and that's because you, you weren't, or perhaps you were and you long forgot, which is possible as well. All these years later, it's, it's funny how some sermons, you know, we, we, we're preaching here every single week, and so some sermons, they, they have a shelf life, some don't. But even all these years later, occasionally I hear somebody will say, hey, that, that's an opportunity. And I'll be like, hey, that's right. That was a long time ago, but it's still there in your mind. Somebody once said that uh, any sermon worth preaching once is worth preaching many times. And so today, I'm going to give a hopefully new and updated version of that old message from 16 years ago, our great opportunity, our great opportunity. It is worthy, I think, of a second go-around because Jesus says that there is one command that is the greatest command. If there is one command that you want to get right, it's this one command. And so I, I would say at least once every 16 years or so, it's good for us as a congregation to remind ourselves what is that one command that we had better get right if we're going to get any of them right. This is a command that destroys religious hypocrisy. This is a, a command that destroys sort of empty legalism. This is a command that uh, destroys the sort of like normal, I go to church, I do my religious thing, I live the way that I want during the week. This is a command that obliterates all of that. It is also a command that creates difficult questions that I would like to answer with one word, oblatunity. So we're here in Matthew 22, and uh, you'll notice if you just glance at, at chapter 22, it's, it's an anthology of, uh, of, of conflict, conflict between the religious leaders of the day and this young prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. And these uh, religious leaders, they're essentially, they're, they're wanting to take Jesus down. They're jealous of him. They're jealous of his crowds. They know that he's speaking against their basic approach to God. And they want to take him down. And so you have in chapter 22 a series of what we would call gotcha questions. Uh, misleading or uh, deceptive kind of trapping questions that they ask him, hoping that maybe they can create a scandal. So you'll notice that, uh, for example, the famous, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not question is here in, Ma in Matthew 22. The Sadducees come to Jesus with one of the hot debated things of the time uh, regarding the resurrection and say, is there any resurrection from uh, the dead is the essence of their, of their question. And in each case, Jesus brilliantly shuts them up. And it's almost like he does it without even sweating. Like he just answers the question, well, here's the truth. And, and each one of them, they're like, oh. You know, it's kind of that response for them. They have nothing to say. And that's the wisdom, of course, of the eternal God answering the finite questions of finite human beings. So look at verse 34, and let's get into now the one that we're going to focus on. 
Uh, Here's what Matthew writes. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And there you have, okay, so the, the, uh, the trap is being set here. So here's the setting, okay? First century Judaism, uh, a, a different kind of approach to religion than we find in the American culture today, generally speaking, but with a, a lot of the same problems. God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai best represented by the Ten Commandments, but many, many other laws as well. In fact, I've been reading through what is known as the Pentateuch, okay, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I've been reading through uh, the Pentateuch in my just personal reading. And if you, if you read through Exodus and Leviticus, for example, all of the commands and all of the directives about how to do what and this the case and this kind of sacrifice and this feast and this thing and this, that, and the other, it's astonishing all of the laws that you find in those two books. In fact, I often find myself as I'm reading, it's like, hey, these people are just like us. How do they remember all of this stuff? And how do they practice? You know, we, we struggle with just the famous 10. How about all the rest of them? And there are a lot of them. And so by the time you get to the first century, the Jews, the, uh, the, the, the Jews are uh, seeking answers to that essential question by, here's how they did it, they, they categorized every command that they found in the Old Testament law, okay, every directive, and they identified 613 direct commands that had to be obeyed. Then they said, well, let's decide which of these are important and which of these are not as important. Well, guess what? Huge argument ensues over that, okay? Which are the most important? Which are the least important? Uh, And so what what we find then is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, decide that they're going to bring to Jesus the question that they themselves can't answer, sort of the Rubik's Cube theological question of the day. Now to us, this is like, you know, sort of pedestrian, it doesn't excite emotions necessarily, but first century Judaism, this was a hotly debated thing, almost like the passion that we see today around abortion or immigration was the passion that the Jews approached questions like this regarding doctrine and theology. So, Here's what happens. Look at verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, this is Jesus now, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Now, one of the things that we ought to love out of this answer is that Jesus, like, doubles down with them. They didn't ask him what the second greatest commandment was. They only asked him what the greatest commandment was. But he goes ahead and answers that one anyway. Because here's the greatest commandment. And oh, by the way, in case you're wondering, here is the second great command. Love your neighbor as yourself, which we're going to get into in two weeks. What does that command mean? He says, on these two hang all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament writings, like two giant pegs. If you want to know what Genesis through Malachi is really all about, you need to understand, love God, love your neighbor. 
Everything you find else is sort of like description of those two basic duties that we have uh, before God. So uh, he quotes here now, this, the first, love your, the Lord your God, from Deuteronomy 6. And this is the famous, what was known and still is to this day, known as the Shema. Okay, the Shema. Every faithful Jew quoted the Shema twice a day. And so uh, all of them knew these words very, very well. Maybe they'd said them so much that it sort of lost their power, especially the first part. Okay, if, if there's a famous line in Judaism, it's, it's this line. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. They said it over and over and over again. And it's part of what makes Judaism mono, a, a, a monotheistic religion. They believe in one God. And they so believe in one God, it's what keeps them from being Trinitarian. Okay? And why they stumbled over how Jesus could claim to be the Son of God. There's only one God. Which ironically, here in this passage, we have the second person of the Trinity quoting from the passage that talks about the fact that there is one God. And there you have the mystery of a three-in-one Trinitarian God. But enough of that. Love here is the repeated requirement in both commands. Okay, It's not kill the dove, kill the, kill the lamb, you know, do this feast, live in this tent. No. The most important commands from God to us both have the word love in them. Love. And then you have description of that love. Okay, so for God, we are to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Leviticus 19, which is his quoting, uh, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6 says, might, Jesus changes it to mind, which you can do when you're God, okay? <laughs> he changes it to mind, love with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then regarding our neighbor, we are to love our neighbor as we naturally have self-concern ourselves now this raises a very important question okay really important question how can God command love like is it love of feeling that's what the songs say and the poets and uh, the Disney movies and all the rest love is a feeling Especially uh, when you think about the way love is used in our culture, how confusing this can be for us because we apply the word love to things on massively different scales. So we can say something like this. Uh, we can use the word love to describe how you feel about your cat and how you feel about your country. Same word is used. We can love our dishware and we can love our children. Same word somehow is used for that. Love is often viewed in our culture as this sort of like emotional wave that comes over us. We are passive. It, it's generated from deep down. I mean, the great lovers, this is like destiny love that somewhere in time past summoned and called me to love this particular woman, and we are destined for one another. She's my soulmate. He's my soulmate. The feelings I have when I'm Within a mile of this person, I can't describe the goosebumps that come over me just being in proximity to the one true love of my life. That was pretty good, wasn't it? I think in 16 years we're going to play that clip right there. Okay? 
So we talk about love as something that happens at first sight. We talk about love and, and apply it to sexual relations between a man and a woman. And then we come to a text like this, and God says, you need to love me. Well, if your definition of love is a feeling like I feel for my lover, my spouse or whatever, and now i got to feel about God that way, it's like, ew. Or i got to feel about God like I feel about my dishware. What? The argument goes, if love is a feeling, then it shouldn't be commanded. That's just not right. It has to flow mysteriously and organically from within us. So how can God command a feeling? Oblatunity, okay? Oblatunity. I'd like to deconstruct this entire approach to love and to God with this one word, oblatunity. Now, if you're not familiar with this word, it's because I made it up. Okay, I made it up. Now, you might say, Pastor Steve, you're not allowed to make up words. Well, actually, every word that we have in the English language was made up by somebody. And so this is my contribution to Webster's Dictionary is the word oblatunity. So uh, we're making up this word. What does it mean? Okay, so it's, an, it's a mashup word between two words. The first word is obligation. Second word is opportunity. If you took those two words and you just smashed them together, you have the word oblatunity. Did you get it? Okay. Obligation, opportunity, together would be oblatunity. Oblatunity. Loving God, here's what I want to say today. Loving God is your greatest obligation. And that is why it is the greatest commandment. You must love God. Every one of you, and me as well. This is not something that is debatable, something that we can sort of negotiate. We must love God. It is our greatest obligation in life. Tunity highlights that loving God is the greatest privilege, the greatest privilege that a human being can have, the greatest love, the greatest experience of love is the love between a created human being and his creator. And that is our highest privilege, okay? Our highest privilege. So let's talk about these two aspects of loving God and begin with the obligation part. And I want to press this home. I said it with a little emotion a moment ago. I want to press this home uh, to you that this is not a negotiable, I'll work on it kind of a spiritual truth. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. And Jesus identifies it as the greatest and most important command, loving God. Now notice, in case you're like, well, I get it, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room here, let's not take this too seriously. Notice how it is described. We are to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. What's left? Nothing. And that's the point. The repetition of all, all, all is to intend that in my heart and in my life and in who I am as a person, this love is the all-encompassing love of my life. 
All my heart, this is not that organ pumping inside of you. This is heart is a description of the, the, where our affections are and where our, uh, uh, the center of our being, you might call it the real you. Down there in the real you, who you are, there w- must be love for God. All my soul, this is where our desires are, our, our spiritual self. There we are to love God. With all my mind, this is where we think and where we process and where we value. There, we are to love God with all of our mind. And I would encourage you, don't make too fine of a distinction here. Like you might be sitting there going, well, you know, I'm, I'm more of a love God with my mind kind of Christian. I'm not so good at the heart part, but I'm okay with that. I, I, I'm gonna pick two out of the three that I wanna focus on. And that's not at all what the command is getting at. These are descriptive and they're trying to be all-encompassing broad statements so that we understand that there is no place in my heart and life where, by this command, God is not to be treasured supremely. With all that I have, everything in me, as much as I can, love God. Henry Skugel describes the love of God this way. The love of God is, and this is not God's love towards me, but my love towards him. The love of God is a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections, which makes the soul resign and sacrifice itself wholly unto him, desiring above all things to please him, and delighting in nothing so much as in fellowship and communion with him, and being ready to do or suffer anything for his sake or at his pleasure. Now that's flowery language. For the basic core truth, all that I have, all that I am, loving him, most, highest, supremely. Remember what Jesus said to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, repeated it three times. Peter, do you love me? Because when you really get down to what you are doing and why you're here today, that's really the bottom line. Yes, it's great to get help for your marriage, and yes, it's great to understand justification, and yes, it's great to to, uh, read the Bible and pray, but at the bottom line of bottom lines is, in my heart, is God in the first place? Can I say, as we learned last week, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My desire is for what you want more than what I want, because in my heart, you are esteemed higher than even the desires that I have for myself. I love you that much. Who do we love? And again, by love, we mean value, treasure, desire, worship. Within our hearts, who has that highest place? The greatest love. I think of the old Whitney Houston song where she uh, summarizes, I think, essentially man's Uh, sense of love ever since the fall. This is sort of like Ecclesiastes uh, kind of love. Her lyric says this, the greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And you see how that is completely backwards, isn't it? Loving yourself. Self-love leads to self-destruction which played out tragically in Whitney Houston's life, didn't it? Without God, 
Self-love is our natural default. Without God as sinners, ever since the fall, we, we, we come out of the womb and we're pre-wired for loving ourself, not loving God. Which is why this commandment is the greatest because there is no other command that shows how far we fall short of the glory and the love of God than the fact that we are commanded to love God more than anything else. We are morally obligated to love God. Hear that, okay? This is not a guidebook to self-actualization. We are morally obligated to love God. To not love God is to violate God's law just like robbing the bank and murdering somebody. It is a moral obligation that we have to love him. And it is this obligation to love God that damns us no matter how morally superior we might think we are. Better than other people, yes. Have you loved God your whole life, every moment, with all your heart, soul, and mind? And for a sinner, the answer to that is, no, I have not. In fact, I can't. This is a command that is an obligation. And I wonder, does that seem fair to you for God to throw that one down on us? Like, I'm no more able to love God with all my, naturally with all my heart, soul, and mind than I am to, to high jump the Sears Tower. I just can't do it. And so the question then is that, okay, well, how, how do I ever become somebody that even takes baby steps towards loving God in this way? And what is clear when we understand who we are naturally as self-lovers To look at this command, the the only way that I'm going to even begin to do that, something has to change. Something about my wiring has to change. And how can that change happen? And as I I read these Old Testament prophecies, listen through the grid of our obligation to love God. Here's Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 11, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. And then Jesus comes into this world and begins to talk about a radical change that he is bringing. And he calls it new birth. In fact, he says to Nicodemus, the only way that you are going to understand what I'm talking about, the only way you're going to ever enter the kingdom of God, is that you must be born again. And Nicodemus, the scholar, Old Testament scholar, goes, i got to go up in my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, you teach the Israel and you don't even know what I'm talking about here? You must be born again again. And what Jesus was talking about, this radical new birth, is what the prophecies of the Old Testament were pointing to 
regarding the law of God, not written in stone outside, but written on our hearts. The law of God down deep in who we are. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What new has come? We're talking about a new heart. A new heart. Unlike the old heart, which was unable to love God and love neighbor. The old heart that, uh, uh, that, that Ezekiel talks about as being a heart of stone. What's a, if your heart was a heart of stone right now, what good is a heart of stone inside of you? Nothing. It can't pump anything. It'd be like a dead heart. That's essentially what he's saying. Your dead heart cannot obey the law of God, has no desire to obey the law of God, has no inclination to loving God at all. The only way that this can happen is God somehow has to take the old heart out and put a new heart in. This last year we had a woman in our church, heart disease for years, was on the waiting list for a new heart. And she got the call one day, they rushed up to Northwestern Hospital and they opened her up and they took out the diseased heart and they put in a new heart. They sewed her up. She's like a new woman now. She feels great. And in a way, that's what God is saying here. He is saying this, that what I am going to do is I am going to make a way for that old heart that can't love, can't desire, is so selfish, self-oriented. I'm going to take that heart out and I'm going to put in a new heart. And that new heart is going to now, for the first time, like that woman when she got that new heart, the new heart now for the first time, blood, spiritual blood will begin to be pumped into your life. And you are going to have a heart with new desires and new capacities. And until that happens, the love command is only an obligation. It is merely a command. It is condemnation. You're going to hell because you can't love God at all. But a new heart, a new heart, well, now a new heart can do things the old heart couldn't. The new heart, it can love God. And here's the thing, friends. Not only can it, it wants to. It wants to. It wants to know God. It wants to love him. It wants to please him. And this may start very slowly, and it may be incremental and all of that, but there is a new thing that is going on, almost like you've been born again, like you're a new creature, a new creation. There's a new thing that happens. And with that new thing, this new set of desires comes, a desire for moral obedience, I don't know if I have time for this. I'm going to tell you a quick story. It just came to my mind. i got to tell this really, really fast. So I had this couple that came and met with me not so long ago. They've been living together, but they've been coming to our church. And as they've been here, they've just begun, God's been working in their heart and in their life. And I don't know if this is renewal or regeneration, but think God was working in their life. And they came and they, they met with me. They said, we want to get married in like three months but we're living together and something's not right and we want to please God more than anything, what should we do? And I said, you need to move out like tonight or I'll marry you tomorrow. You take your pick. They called me like an hour later, they said, we'll get married tomorrow. 
And so here they come, and, uh, and I, I married them right here. I pulled a few staff people in, you know, one of them sang a song over them in Christ alone. <laughs> I married them. They left so rejoicing and so happy. And last week, one of them was leading us in worship. How do you explain that? Okay? How do you explain that? It's a new set of desires that God places within us when we submit our life and faith to Jesus. Okay? That's what happens. And that is why loving God is not simply our greatest ob- obligation, it is also our greatest opportunity. Regeneration is what frees all of God's commands from being have-tos to being want-tos. Okay? Want-tos. They remain a duty. Okay? It's not that we, oh, now that I'm a Christian, I don't have to do it because I'm under grace, you know, all of this baloney that people say. No, it is still a duty. But it is no longer merely a duty. It is no longer merely something I have to do. Now, for the first time, it's something that I want to do. I want to love God. I want to please God. I want to do what he wants. I want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and all these other things. And this want-to aspect is the joy of it. This want-to aspect is the delighting and the rejoicing and the gladness This is the real thing. This is authentic Christianity. And Christ has freed us from approaching God and serving God merely as a duty. And aren't you glad for that, friends? If this was just sort of a thing, go through the routine, I'm just gonna do church, I'm gonna try to obey God because somehow I think it's earning me favor with God and I get to go to heaven because I'm a good enough person. So many people approach it that way. That is drudgery. That's like a rot. That's like formalism. That's blah. What brings this whole thing together is when my heart is delighting in God and I am seeking to know him and love him. That's what brings the, the authenticity and the realness to your Christian life. And praise God, he has given us this capacity to love him. And that is oblatunity. What you have to do is also what you wanted to do. And God is honored when we love him. Okay? The love of this. Realize, God didn't send Jesus to earth to die for us to make us into robots. Where, okay, I will now, I will obey you, I will do what you want. No. He could have done that easily. Created people to do that. He sent Jesus to earth to create children of God, to create the family of God, to create disciples who serve him not merely because we have to, but because we want to, because we love him more than anything else. It is a duty for sure, but it is, it is so much more than a duty. It is a delight. It is a delight. Religions approach this the opposite way, and unfortunately, many Christian churches. You gotta do this, and you gotta do that, and you bad people get out there, and you do what you're supposed to do. And everyone's struggling, wondering, am I doing it enough? Am I, am I doing it good enough? And all of that. Outward conformity, real Christianity doesn't do that. It begins right here, and it changes right here. 
And now the things that you are doing flow from a desire that you prior had no real capacity for, no desire for, but now as a new Christian, you're like, I kind of want to not live with my girlfriend. I kind of want to get married in a Christian church and honor God in every way, as one example. And each of you, no doubt, have your own stories and examples. This is real Christianity. This is passion. Like this is this is this is that that joy and gladness that is that that C.S. Lewis talked about the serious joy of Christianity. That's what it is. It's loving God and seeking Him more than anything else. And it is a duty, but it is also a delight. I think back to my own my own wedding four and a half years ago. Again, standing right here where I got married as well, and you know. You get to that part in the, in the ceremony where, you know, they declare you husband and wife, blah, blah, blah. It's a joke. And, uh, and, they, and, and the, 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 the preacher says, and now you, and this was my brother-in-law, Jeff, who did the ceremony, and now, Steve, you may, you may kiss Jennifer. Now, in that moment, do I have to do it? I mean, yes. There's a certain social expectation, isn't there, that the groom is going to kiss the bride, and it'd be sort of scandalous if you didn't. And so there's, I mean, there is, that's a duty moment right there. Single men, get ready for a big duty moment if you you get married, because like you, you like so have to do it, right? But did I want to do it? big time, okay? And if you were here, I tried to lay a memorable one on her, right? I waited a long time to give that kiss, and I wanted it to be a good one. And I did it because I had to, and I did it because I wanted to. So the ceremony gets done, we have the party, and then we sort of like had to go on our honeymoon. I mean, do you have to go on a honeymoon? It's, in our culture, it's sort of become almost an expectation, right? You get married, you're going to go away for a day or two at least. Like, you sort of have to go on a honeymoon. Duty. Did I want to go on the honeymoon? After being a single man for 44 years, you bet I wanted to go on that honeymoon. And it was a great delight to do so. And that's what real love creates. It creates want to. It creates want to. And that should be the aim of our Christian lives and our walk with God, is the want to. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, God has given you a heart to want to love God. Now, if you're here today, and that's not in you right now, this is like, you're, you're living over on the duty side of the Christian life instead of the delight side. Just like a marriage. There are certain things in marriage, you know, the day-to-day of marriage. There's a lot of have-to in marriage. And that marriage is a gift. For that marriage, uh, if that marriage stays in the have-to side for very long and there's not the want-to going on, that's a marriage that is in serious trouble. And if your marriage is like that, who's responsible for it? You are, because you've received a gift, and that marriage can be what you and your spouse make it. 
And your walk with God is similar to that. If, you're, if your walk with God has been living on the duty side and the have-tos for very long, your walk with God is in serious trouble. And that is not what God wants, and that doesn't please God. And that's not the aim of our church, is to get a bunch of robotic, duty-bound Christians. We need to cultivate that heart, work that heart in such a way that I am living more and more in the day-to-day on the want-to side of serving God and loving God. So Christian friend, how are you doing with that? Okay, how are you doing with that? The real thing is oblatunity, it's both. I don't want anybody here at Bethel Church to think, hey, that's her. they just, they're just, man, they just pound me with the commands and tell me what a terrible person I am and I need to go out and sort of, you know, buck up and, and, and do what I'm supposed to do and that's all that God expects. Okay? No way. We want passion here. We want delight here. We want the real thing here. We want to cultivate this walk with God and sort of the ethos and culture of our church in such a way that that actually our hearts are drawn, because we're here more and more, to loving God and delighting in Him and seeing Him as being not just the person that I have to love, but the person that more than anything I want to love and I want to live for and to love and to cherish and to treasure. A thriving Christian is one who works at loving their God, intentionally does the things that stirs the affections within us so that I love God. And that's where all, you know, we talk about these other things that we say, hey, why don't you come serve God? And you go, ah, I don't need to do that. Who hurt, who's hurt by that? that? Is that heart getting warmer or colder because of that? Hey, here's an opportunity. Why don't you come and let's gather together and let's pray? Ah, I don't know. I think I'll watch the ball game. Who's hurt by that? When that heart cools, and doesn't access things that stir up and generate passion and desire for God. Remember, God gave you the heart. You can't blame God for not loving him. If you're a Christian, you have the heart. But it is your responsibility to cultivate that heart and that love. I wonder if you can say it today. I love the Lord. I love you, God. I love you. If Jesus came to you and said, Susan, do you love me? Sam, do you love me? John, do you, do you love me? How would you respond this morning if Jesus asked you, do you love me? And we hear in the command, the, the call that Jesus has in that question. And you say, well, how can God sort of command us to love him? It seems egotistical. Here's why. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. He made us in such a way that he knows our greatest happiness does not come by loving ourselves. It comes by loving him more than anything else. That is why the chief end of man is to glorify God God and enjoy him forever. And God knows that. And so he commands what he knows will lead to our happiness. This is not a God doesn't like me and he's requiring me to love him. No, he loves us. And he knows exactly what would bring us the greatest joy in life, which is to love him and enjoy him forever. And the Christianity that we are promoting here, it's not just the abla, 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 abla. I've been in churches like that. I don't want to pastor a church like that. It's the tunity, 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 tunity side that draws out 
that sort of genuine, real, passionate love for God. So that when the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, we get that our giving is a duty and it is a delight. When the Bible says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, we get that when I'm loving God more than anything, his desires become my desires because I'm delighting in him. And when the Bible says rejoice in the Lord and serve the Lord with gladness, we understand that we are doing life with delight in God. And none of us does it perfectly, and I don't want you to turn the tunity into an abla and walk out of here and go, I've got to love God perfectly all the time. No, you are a sinner. You still have that old heart. But more and more, increasingly, as God takes a control of my heart and my life and I surrender and submit to him and pursue him, there is a growing, loving, treasuring of God that is produced within us, and we want more of it. So that, listen, I can speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but if I don't have love for God, I gain nothing. And I can prophesy and have all knowledge, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. I can have faith that says to this mountain, be cast into the sea. But if my whole approach to my religion is void of a true and genuine love for God, I gain nothing. But with love for God... All of my sacrifice and all of my services and all of my quiet prayers and all of the serving where nobody notices and all of my giving and all of the little things, big and small, that I do for God, all of them I see as the greatest privilege and joy in my life to serve the one that I love with all my heart, soul, and mind. Better than love for parents is love for God. Better than love for spouse is love for God. Better than love for children is love for God. To know God and to love him is the greatest opportunity of all. Let's do that. Opportunity. Amen. So how are you doing with that? You know what an idol is? An idol is when you love something more than God. You think it's worth more. In your heart, it's got a higher place. Any idols today? What do you do if you haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, and mind? You repent. You repent. That's why this is not a, like, I think I'll go and try to work on that. It's a nice self-improvement sort of message. No. We repent and we confess it as sin. I have failed to love you. I have allowed something else, somebody else, whatever, me, to be my number one. Repent of it. Ask God to reveal to your heart and soul that he is worth more. Don't you think God would delight to answer that prayer? I think so. I'm sort of freelancing right now, but thoughts that come to my mind. What thoughts are coming to your mind right now? What would God have you to do with this? How might living this way change you? Or what needs to be changed for you to get out of the Abla Christianity and live in the land of Tunity Christianity? 
I'm still freelancing here, I'm just wondering. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about anything? Will you surrender to that? I'm gonna pray that you will.